This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. Luke chapter 15, starting at the first verse, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this par parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which needeth no repentance. We see here in this particular parable, Christ is showing, he, he says that one sheep out of a hundred is lost, is missing. And we see that even though it's just one of many that are gone, that go astray, says this man go, goes after it to find it and rejoices when he finds it. And we can see from that that even though we're one of many, one of many of God's creatures, God still wants us to return to him. He, we are that special to him. He's willing to go out and seek out just one out of many. Continue on in verse 8. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently... Till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found that the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So a similar parable here, only this one, it's one of ten pieces of silver. Now, silver, a piece of silver, I'm assuming in that day as it is in this, is very valuable. And it's one piece out of ten. That's a great deal of worth. And I believe what Christ is trying to show here is the great deal of worth that God places on each one of his children, each one of his creation. One out of ten, and it's a piece of silver. And this woman, when she's lost it, she goes through, she turns the house upside down to find it. And again, we see the rejoicing that occurs. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, I found that which was lost. So after seeing that we're one of many and that we're worth a great deal to God, then he tells the parable of the prodigal son. And you may be familiar with this, but really it's, it's a very lovely story. It's beautiful uh, to see how the father, which is God, this, the father represents God, receives his son, who is the sinner that comes back to him. So in Luke 15 at verse 11, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, 
and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry." So there's several things that we need to observe about this parable. You can read on about the elder son and his, uh, uh, it goes on to tell how he was not happy with his son return, his brother, excuse me, returning and was jealous of that. and. And to me, that represents the Jews' rejection of the Gentiles, how they did not want them uh, to be allowed into the kingdom. I say that because that's the context of, of who he's speaking to here, the scribes and the Pharisees. But regardless, uh, when we consider this younger son, he is representative of mankind, fallen man, a sinner, one that has left, uh, left the father. And if you'll notice in verse 12, it says that the son tells his father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He wanted his inheritance right away. And you know, when you consider it as God's children, as us being God's children, when we fall astray, when we go astray and, and go off of the path of righteousness, that's really what we're doing. We're taking the goods that God has given us our portion of goods, we're taking our life that he's given us, our health, whatever assets we have, our resources, our talents, we're taking that and we're going away with it. And if we don't come back to God, if we don't follow God, we're wasting that in his sight. We're wasting the goods that he has given us. And we see here that this son, the younger son, when he went into the far country, he wasted it with riotous living. And later on, you can see where the elder son complains that he had wasted it with harlots. He just lived a sinful, wicked life. And we see the state that he finds himself in. He's to the point that he's feeding swine and willing to eat what they're eating just to get by, just to have something in his belly. And when you consider it from the Jewish perspective, which was who Christ was speaking to here, the Jews weren't even to be around swine. They weren't to eat swine or anything like that. And that would be the lowest place that they could be, living with swine. That's the lowest place that this, this son found himself in. But it says in verse 17 that he came to himself. He realized his condition. He realized that his mind was sick with sin. And he was ready to change that. He realizes that back at his father's home that he could have everything that he needed. And so he repents in verses 18 to 19 and, and 20. 
He says he's going to go to his father. He makes up his mind. He changes his will. He changes his mind and says, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to apologize to him, ask for his forgiveness, and hopefully he will restore me just as a servant, if nothing else, anything. He will accept anything that he gets at this point. So that shows his repentance. And you know, before he ever has time to confess to his father what he's done, says that it's when he was yet a great way off, it's his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now I submit to you, just think about this. How did that father see him a great way off? You know, when I think of this parable, I think of uh, a large farm or this uh, estate you may think of and see this footpath leading off into the distance, off into the horizon. And as soon as that boy come up over that horizon, his father saw him. And I submit to you, he saw him a great way off because he was looking. He wanted his son to come back. He was looking for his son to come back, hoping he would. Remember, this is God. And so when we consider ourselves as sinners and, and God's fallen creation, he's looking for us to come back. He wants us to come back. And before this boy ever had time to apologize, to to confess his sins, the father was right there, willing to accept him, willing to bring him back into the fold. And of course, the, the son confesses that he sinned against his father and against heaven. And notice in verse 24, well, the father, prior to that, the father restores him, puts a ring on his finger, robe on him, they kill a fatted calf, they rejoice. He's restored back to his place with the Father, and all is merry. Now, keep this in mind as we go through this study. That's how God sees us as fallen people. His creation that fell away from him and needed a Savior, needed to be brought back and restored, God wants us to come back to him. That's his desire for us as his people. Now these next several sets of verses, I see it a lot as a puzzle. I see this, this, uh, this lesson as a puzzle. I'm gonna have to throw a bunch of puzzle pieces out here and we're gonna sort through them and look through them and once we get it all together, then we'll come back and summarize it. So hang with me here on this. We have an, an example, when we consider forgiveness from God as Christians, and this, this lesson is intended, is directed towards Christians, when we consider forgiveness and, and when we sin and we need forgiveness, often we go to Acts chapter 8. We have a good example there. It's an extreme example of a sin that was committed. And if you're familiar with this, this is Simon the sorcerer. And just to set the context, what's going on here is this evangelist Philip has went to, the, went to Samaria and he's preaching the gospel of Christ and he's performed miracles. He had that ability. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. And there was a man named Simon there. Now this Simon was what we call a sorcerer. He had, it says he had bewitched the people, made them think that he was some great one from God, and he was making his living from that. And he was performing whatever kind of trickery or witchcraft, wizardry, whatever you want to call it some sort of tricks 
to make people think he was from God. But when he saw Philip performing these true miracles, he believed also. It exposed him as a fraud, and he believed Philip. He were told he was baptized, and he followed Philip, beholding the signs and miracles that he'd done. Now, Peter and John were sent to this place to impart the gifts of the Holy Spirit onto believers so that they would have the tools that they needed, these miraculous gifts. And when they did this and they imparted these miraculous gifts of the Spirit, Simon saw that. And not only did he desire these gifts, but he desired the ability to give these gifts to others. And he offered them money. He offered Peter and, and John money to be able to do this. See, what he was doing was he was like the dog going back to his vomit. Something clicked in him, and he went back to his sinful ways. Peter answers him in Acts chapter 8, verse 21. He says, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Peter gives Simon a very harsh rebuke here, and it's a well-deserved rebuke. He tells him that, that he, what he's doing is wicked, and it was. He was trying to buy the gift of God, and he was probably thinking that this would be an investment for him to make money off of it. And so Peter tells him, you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You know, oftentimes as Christians, when we make a mistake, when we find ourselves have committed some sin, we think of this. You know, Peter gave Simon the remedy here to repent and pray. And, and we need to do that when we make a mistake. But oftentimes we think, you know, I've, I've committed a sin, so I'm in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I'm in danger of the judgment. Sometimes we, we feel that way. You know, we realize that we're all, we've all sinned, and we all commit sin from time to time. Romans 3 and 23 tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that. We realize that. So, another puzzle piece here. When we are considering um, our sin and, and how God views that, look at John chapter 3. And we're going to spend a lot of time in John uh, 1 John, that is. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to spend a lot of time in 1 John. Starting at verse 4, it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Again, we... When we commit sin and we find ourselves in this situation, oftentimes we think of verses like this where John explains, he says that uh, he that sinneth hath not seen him. 
and he that committed sin is of the devil. And when we, when we couple that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the example we have in Acts chapter 8 of Simon, you know, oftentimes when we get it in our mind, we think, well, I'm right with God, I'm saved, I've obeyed the gospel, but then I make a mistake and I commit a sin. And so now I'm in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And I must repent and pray to come out of that, to be forgiven of that. And so I'm like the prodigal son, and then I'm saved again. But then what happens? We commit another sin. And then we're in the, we're in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. We must repent and pray. And so oftentimes we feel like we're on this roller coaster, up and down. We're saved, we're not saved, saved, not saved. And sometimes that's how we can feel, and I've felt that way at times, and I know I've talked to people that's felt that way. But that's not the case. That's not how it is. When we study more about 1 John, there's more to it than just that. And again, bear with me here. We're going to scatter all these puzzle pieces out, and we'll put it all together in a minute. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6 says if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie and do not the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our, us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now notice what John's saying here prior to, you know, we read where John says, he that committed sins of the devil. But here he's telling us, we all have sin. We have sin in our lives. If we say that we don't have sin, we're lying. We're trying to deceive ourselves. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You see, so there's more to it than just that. Remember who John is writing to here. And that's important. It's always important when we read the scriptures to see who's writing, who they're writing to and why, and to realize that it's all inspired by God. That's very important. Always keep that in mind as you're reading scriptures. In 1 John 2 and 12, he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He's speaking to Christians here. Keep that in mind. He's saying your sins are forgiven you because of Christ. Keep that in mind. Now, continue on back up to 1 John 2 and verse 1. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, Hereby we know that we are in him. We see here that John brings up this point that we must keep his commandments or we must walk in the light. And that is essential for us in our salvation and our forgiveness. And he says, 
he says he's writing to us that we sin not. That is the goal, obviously, to not sin. But he says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's Jesus Christ. But he said, it is of utmost importance that we keep his commandments. Verse 5 we read, but whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, and hereby we know that we are in him. So we see here this idea of, of walking in the light or, or keeping God's commandments. And, you know, Paul really summarizes it very well, and he, he points that out to It's all about how we live our lives, or it's, it's a good deal about that, if you will. It's all about our mindset and who we serve, who we have made our mind up to serve. In Romans 6, starting in verse 16, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield your, yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Paul points out here that, that it's all about who we yield ourselves servants to obey. If we obey the lust of the flesh, obey, obey sin, obey, we're obeying the devil is what we're doing. And that's who we're serving. And, and in that case, we're a sinner. But if we're obeying righteousness, obedience unto righteousness, we're following God, we're doing the best that we can to follow him and his commandments, then we're servants of righteousness. And that sin is not counted to us. Now, I've heard people say before, and, and we have to be very careful in how we say this, but there's a difference in being a sinner and being one who commits sin. And it's, it's like I said, you have to be very careful about how you define it. I've heard a lot of people say, well, I'm not a sinner. And that gives some people the impression that we think we're perfect and we don't commit sin. That's not true. But if we're obeying righteousness and we're doing the best that we can to live after God and walk in the light, we're not a sinner in the sense that we're, that we're yielding ourselves to that sin. Yes, we will make mistakes along the way. We will find ourselves committing a sin. Hopefully not too much, but it happens. But we're not a sinner in that sense. We just commit sin, and Christ will forgive us of that as long as we are walking in the light. It's all about who you obey, whether you're walking in the light or in darkness. Now we consider Simon and the extreme example we have there. It wasn't that he just made a mistake and realized it. He was going back into his old former life. The dog turned back to his vomit, the sow to her wallowing in the mire. He was backsliding. Now, we can do that if we find ourselves in that situation. We can fall from grace and, and be like Simon was and in danger of the judgment in the, the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. But that's not always the case with every single sin. You see, none of us are perfect. We're not going to live a perfect life. We're not on this. We don't need to view our Christian walk as this up and down struggle, a roller coaster. I'm saved. I'm not saved. I'm saved. I'm not saved. It needs to be an even kill. As long as we're walking in the light, we need to have that confidence that we are saved. Remember 
the compassion that the father showed toward the prodigal son. Keep that in mind. The father always wants us back home and to stay there at home. Now Paul, in uh, Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 17, uh, just to set the context of this, in, Paul, in, uh, in Romans 7, Paul's uh, speaking of this conflict or this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And, and he's, he's pointing out that, that as Christians, we have this battle within us, and it's a struggle within us. In Romans 7 and 17, he says, Now then is it no more that I... Excuse me, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And basically what Paul's saying here in this chapter and these verses is he's saying there's this struggle between our flesh and our spirit. Our spirit desires the good things of God. And we desire to do righteousness, and that's our mindset. That's walking in the light. That is being obedient unto righteousness. But then we have the flesh. Then we have these temptations. We have these weaknesses in our flesh. And sometimes we find ourselves succumbing to those weaknesses. And we commit sin in some way. No matter how big or how small we think it is, we're committing sin. And so what Paul's showing here, he's not saying that this is, is an excuse of his sin. He's not trying to excuse the sin that he has. He's just saying that this is a rea reality. Even though we're trying to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, sometimes sin slips in, and it's that fleshly desire that we have. He's not giving us a license to sin here. God is not doing that through Paul's teaching. Paul actually teaches just on the contrary of that in Romans chapter 6. We'll start at the first verse, and in the previous chapter, what he is concluding with this first verse here is he's speaking of being justified by faith, and that it's through grace, God's grace, that we're forgiven. And grace, of course, is a, an unmerited favor. It's a free gift that God gives us even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. He's given it to us by grace, and he is answering that argument. He says in Romans 6 and 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's saying, you know, when sin entered into the world, and, and the law was there to show what the sin is, to show us what sin was, it also convicts us and it makes us guilty of that sin. But by grace, through faith in Christ, faith in God, we are forgiven of that sin. And so Paul's argument here is, he, he's saying, you know, we have that sin, and so when there's sin, there's grace, and grace will cover that. And so in Romans 6 and 1, he says, should we continue in sin? Should we sin more and more? so that more of God's grace can abound and cover our sins. He says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He said, no, we shouldn't try to sin to make God's grace abound at all. We should avoid that. Continue in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let sin, or excuse me, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall have shall not have dominion over you for ye are not under the law but under grace what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace God forbid so again several things in here he tells us that when we are baptized into Christ we're baptized into his death and that the body of sin is destroyed and from henceforth we should not serve sin and he says in verse 7 that he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, we may mistake that. That doesn't mean that we are free from ever committing a sin again. We know that's not the case. We know that we make those mistakes. What he's saying there, when we're freed from sin, we're freed from the condemnation of our sin. We're freed from the guilt of that sin. God won't hold that against us anymore. That's how we're freed from sin, not that we're perfect and we're going to live this perfect sin-free life but we don't have to answer for the sins that we have committed and those that we may commit after we're a Christian. He says that we should reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin and that sin should not reign in our mortal body. Just as John had said, we, do not, uh, we are not to serve that sin and obey it. And Paul says in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Paul, of course, teaching the exact same thing here, that we are uh, to walk in the light, to keep God's commandments, and, and to make it our mind to follow him. And as long as we do that, we're not guilty of our sin. The blood of Christ covers that. And this freedom that we have on account of Christ, the freedom from our sin, from the condemnation of the sin that we have committed, should give us confidence. It should give us confidence that we are saved, that we are on the right side of God, and it should give us confidence to work for God. Now in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul here is speaking to his son, a, a beloved son in the faith, He's, he's speaking to his son in the faith, as I said, a, a disciple of his. 
And he tells him, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul has called to Timothy's attention the great faith that exists in him through his mother and grandmother that, that they helped with and the gift that's within him. And he tells him that God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. And in the context of what he's saying here, he's, he's, he goes ahead and tells him not to be ashamed of the gospel and to be partakers of the affliction. He's saying we shouldn't fear the things that come to us as a result of our faith. Any afflictions, any persecutions that we may receive, we, don't, we shouldn't fear that. And I submit to you that along with this, uh, this idea that God has not given us the spirit of fear, I believe that God doesn't want us to be scared of him as well, to be fearful of our Father. Now, we need to have a good, healthy respect of God and to fear him in that sense, but not to be scared of him. Again, I, I point you back to the prodigal son. Even though the prodigal son was in that repentant state in a, a very low part of his life, he had no reason to fear his father because his father wanted to, him to come home. When I think of this idea of not being fearful of God, I often think of the parable that Christ told in Matthew 25. We'll not read the whole parable. You're probably familiar with it, how a man, this Lord, was traveling into a far country, and he left his goods to his servants. He gave five talents to one man, two talents to one, and one talent to another. And he expected them to use those talents. So the man, when he returned, the man with five talents had gained five others. The man with two talents had gained two others. But what did the man with one talent do? He digged in the earth and hid that talent. And when his Lord came back to see what he had done, to see what he had gained, he said, Basically, I know you're a hard man, and I was scared, and I hid this talent, and it's still there. He didn't use it. Didn't use the talent that his Lord had given him. His Lord calls him a wicked and slothful servant, and he takes that talent away from him. What little he had, what little he was given by his Lord was taken away because he didn't use it. He did this because he feared his Lord. He was fearful of him. He feared making a mistake, not being perfect, not gaining what he should gain with the talent that he had. And that led him to be a wicked and slothful servant because he feared his Lord. God does not want us to fear him. He wants us to have confidence towards him and to use the talents that we have for his glory. That's what he wants out of us. Back to 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18. It says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. John's showing us here that we need, through our obedience, that we need to 
to love in, in deed and in truth, to obey God through obedience, to walk in the light, to be a servant of righteousness, all these things. And when we do that, we shall assure, assure our hearts before him and have confidence towards God. Our obedience to God and our faith in God will lead us to this assurance. And so we won't have to fear God. We won't have to be fearful of our salvation and wonder, well, am I forgiven or not? Yeah, if you're, if you're following God's will and you're walking in the light, you're obeying His commandments, then yeah, you're in the fold. You're saved. Do we commit sin? Yes, we do sometimes. But we're told that we have an advocate with the Father. We have Christ. His blood still cleanses us. That's why he had that's why he's the mediator that's why he's still there mediating for us you know consider this consider the early Christians that we read about in the scriptures I often think of Stephen you can think of others Paul Peter you know in uh, secular history records that that they died they were martyred that they were killed on the count of their faith in Christ. Many were. Many that we don't read about were killed as, their, as a result of their faith. Think about those Christians and consider maybe Stephen. Would Stephen have stood up before those Jews and give such a powerful lesson, give such a rebuke to the Jews that had crucified our Lord if he thought that there was sin in his life and he was going to stand guilty of that and he was in danger of the judgment and he was in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity, he was not saved, so he'd better not die now because he might go to hell. Would Stephen have stood up before them and made that, the statements he did, I think he knew he was about to go to his death. I submit to you he may not have said those things if he thought that he was in danger of the judgment. He didn't have that kind of mindset. He was not fearful of God. He had the faith and the assurance that he was saved because he was walking in the light and he was preaching righteousness. And that led him to confidence in God, confidence in his salvation. He did have to give his life that day on a as a result of that. But just as Paul told Timothy... We're not given the spirit of fear. Don't fear what they can do to you. We are to fear God and keep his word. So to summarize what we've went through so far, God will forgive us. He desires to forgive us. That's what he wants out of us. His whole plan from the beginning, from the fall of man, is salvation through Jesus Christ to have a way to forgive us. That's his desire for us. All of us commit sin. We know that. It's, it seems unavoidable at times. We just find ourselves in that state. It's our, it's our flesh. It's the lust that, that sometimes overpower us, but we need to, to fight as much as we can, to fight that fleshly desire and to walk in the Spirit as, as best we can. We're not sinners in the sense that we're serving sin, and that we're obeying the lust, but we serve righteousness. So when we consider our salvation and the forgiveness of God, we're not on this up and down roller coaster. Save, not save, save, not save. We're not on that. We need to have the confidence and the assurance 
that as long as we serve God, that he is forgiving us. He has forgiven us. And that we are on the right side of God. And at any time, if it's our time to go, to leave this world, that we're going to be okay. We, have, we should have that assurance through Christ. Now to continue on with a few other things. When we consider forgiveness of God, you know, we're told the, the remedy there is to repent and pray. And we have in Luke chapter 18, I'd like to read this parable that Christ taught. When we consider uh, our attitude uh, toward God in forgiving us. Luke 18, starting at verse 9, says, And he, and this is Christ, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So here Christ gives us a stark contrast between two men. The first being this, this Pharisee, who in his prayer, if you can call it that, basically gets up, runs everybody else down, and says, God, you are so lucky to have me as your servant. I am so good. It says here that he wasn't justified. The one that justified was this publican, stood afar off, didn't feel worthy to come forward, smote upon his breast, humbled himself, wouldn't even lift his eyes, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was confessing to God that he was a sinner and he was in need of forgiveness. It says that he went down to his house justified because he had confessed to God that he was a sinner and in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness. Now, notice there that, that he didn't spill out all the, the uh, gruesome tales, all the, the details of his sin, all the things he had done. Now, sometimes it is needful for us to pray about specific sins, certain things. But notice that he didn't do that. He just said, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, the illustration I use to help us understand this is, you know, there's a lot of, there's several parents in here, and when you're raising children, you never know what's going to come about. And, and I, when considering uh, confession, to God, I use this example. Just imagine if you've ever had something similar as a parent happen to you. You walk into your child's bedroom and you look and on the walls, about this high and down, there's red crayon marks everywhere. And so you see your dear little angel, son or daughter, 
two or three years old, whatever, with a red crayon in their hand. And as a parent, we may walk in and oftentimes the first thing we say is, what have you done? Well, it's obvious what they've done. We're not asking them so they tell us, I've written on the wall with a crayon. We're asking them so that they look and they look back and they see what they've done. They realize what they've done. That's, what, that's why we ask them, what have you done? So they look and see. And in our house, we, we do that so they know good and well why they're getting what they're about to get, <laughs> the judgment that's going to be brought down on them. But with God, it's no different. God doesn't need us to tell him sins that we've committed. He doesn't need us to say, God, I committed this sin and this sin and I've done this. He doesn't need that. That's not what confession is about. Confession is about us, just as this publican, saying, God, I've looked back at my wall, and I see the red marks. I see what I've done wrong, and I realize that. I realize it was wrong, and I need you to forgive me. I need a Savior. I need Christ's blood to cleanse me. That's what confession is about, so that we realize what we've done, and we can confess to God and say, I need you. That's what God wants out of us. That's what he, he desires uh, to free us from that condemnation of our sin. That's what confession is for. And again, as long as we confess our sins and we live in righteousness, confess that we are a sinner, and we confess and we continue our righteous walk of life, then we should have confidence of our salvation. Back to 1 John chapter 4 starting at verse 13. It says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. John is telling us here that we should have boldness in the day of judgment, boldness that we are saved, that we have been forgiven. And the reason we do is because we have that faith in Christ. We've obeyed his word. We've done the best that we can to live the way he has instructed us to live. And there is no fear in love. When we love God and we obey His commandments, we should have no fear in that. You know, in considering this lesson, this topic, we can see that, that God is willing to forgive us. And something that we've talked about, or that, excuse me, we haven't talked about that's related here is, is we are to forgive others. That's part of our forgiveness. That's kind of a separate subject. But you know, when we consider that, that we forgive others, 
They forgive us if we transgress against them. God forgives us. Sometimes the last thing that happens and the one thing that, that needs to happen is we need to forgive ourselves. Realize that God has forgiven us. He's washed <laughs> us clean. He don't remember those sins. He's not going to hold them against us. But sometimes we like to hang on to that. Maybe not like to, but we do. We hang on to our sins and we feel guilty of them and, and it hinders us in our worship to God and it makes us think, I'm not good enough. Well, the blunt answer to that is no, we're not good enough. That's what we needed Christ for. But with His help, with His blood, His forgiveness, then we're made good enough. So we need to forgive ourselves and, and accept the salvation that God offers us as His children. And there's no other example of better example. There's no better example than Paul the Apostle. Again, writing to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. Paul, through all of his persecutions, his hardships, his trials, all these things kept the faith, and he knew that. And that led him to this confidence that when he got to that point in his life where he saw the end was probably not too far away, he could make this statement, I'm ready to be offered. I fought a good fight. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. And notice it, it says this crown of life, crown of righteousness. He says that not to him only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Loves the appearing of Christ, the coming of Christ where he is coming back to gather his people and deliver them up to God. Now, as God's children, we need to be those that love His appearing, that are ready for that day. That if, if whether we find ourselves at the point that we're like Paul and we can see the end of our life coming, or if it's the case that Christ comes back before we leave this world, whatever case it is, we need to love that appearing and be ready for that. And I hope that each and every one here, if you do see your end coming at the end of your life, can look back and make these similar statements. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I'm ready to be offered. I hope that you can do that. God wants us to have that confidence. The confidence to serve Him and to use our talents as He wants us to. That's why He has given them to us. I hope everyone here uh, at the end can make these same statements and be confident that they are saved. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.